This is a Crowd Podcast. I'm Sam Warburton and this is Captains, the podcast that gives you leadership insights from some of the biggest names in sport. My guest this week is one of the most respected road captains in professional cycling, Luke Rowe. Calmness is key. Like we say, you start a race with a bag of sand and every acceleration you do, every wasted nervous energy is just an extra pinprick. And if you stick enough pinpricks in there, all the sand's going to fall out. You instantly think, well, I've got to start to think of others. I've got to help others. I've got to watch out for others. But essentially, I've learned all you've got to do is look after yourself and make yourself better and others will hopefully follow. It might have been the first time I've said it publicly. It still bugs me, you know. I should have been there. That was a special moment. And it was um, a mistake, <laughs> you know, we paid for it. Hi everyone, and thanks for listening to Captains. It was great catching up with Luke for this episode. He was kind enough to let me and the team come to his house, and I loved hearing about his duties and responsibilities as a road captain, a role I wasn't totally familiar with. His CV is really impressive, riding with the likes of Bradley Wiggins, Mark Cavendish, Chris Froome and Geraint Thomas, his teammate at Ineos Grenadiers. He has played a key role in five Tour de France victories. We compare the relative risks of both of our sports and he lifts the lid on the mindset required for being out on the road, competing for hours on end. It's also great to have Luke as part of the team at Crowd Sports, joining the likes of Geraint, myself, George Groves and Andrew Beef Johnson. It's not a bad group that. We're up in the Welsh contingent with him joining, which is good to see. What's Occurring, the podcast that Luke hosts with Geraint has a new home, so please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club wherever you get your podcasts to get those episodes. Okay, on we go. Enjoy my chat with Luke Rowe. Today is a very special episode. Not only have we been invited to this guest's lovely personal home, also a North Cardiff boy like myself, a cycling legend and a road captain, of course. It is Luke Rowe. So Luke, great to see you, mate. How are you doing? I'm good. First time I've been called legend in a while, so thank you very much for the compliment. I'll, uh, I'll take it. Most people think of captains and they might think of a football captain or maybe someone of a more, more traditional team sport, even though cycling is team and individual. But what is the role of a road captain let's just go to the highest profile thing that you've done or you might correct me if i'm wrong the tour de france in a nutshell what would be the primary roles of a captain in in that sort of competition situation yeah so you're right saying the tour de france you know it is the pinnacle that's the the biggest stage we're on it's a strange title road captain because in a lot of sports it's obviously a massive honor to have that c on your badge or on your chest or the armband it's a massive honor where in cycling it's something that goes a little bit under the radar. And essentially, you're just a communicator. Sometimes a bit of um, there for a bit of morale, sometimes just to gather the troops a bit. But the main thing is, is if you imagine, we can go into the, all the planning we, we like. But once we start the race, then it's just us eight blokes on the road for four or five hours. And communication is very hard. We've got race radios, so we can talk to the car in the convoy that's following us. But the radios terrible they crack all the communications yeah abysmal so in them moments it's us eight guys on the road and even then you're dotted around the peloton so to try and speak to people is hard so it's just communication is is key like i said you have a plan before the race but if something happens we have to adapt we have to change we have to go back to the drawing board and that has to be snap decisions so 
trying to suss out what other teams are doing, trying to exploit their weaknesses. And a lot of that is taken out on the road and you're constantly trying to assess other leaders, assess other teams, just little things that, you know, I'll sit behind someone and I'll say, I'll try and watch what he's eating, trying to watch what he's drinking. Well, hang on, he hasn't drunk enough, he hasn't eaten enough and he could be a leader of another team. Boy, this guy's under fuel. Just, just little things you're constantly trying to observe and in a nutshell, we got eight blokes at the start of a race, get the most out of every single guy to the finish line and just do the best job for the leader, which which I never am. I'm there as um, pretty much purely as a helper. So it's just trying to get, usually, myself and the six other lads to do the best possible job for the leader. So when I was accepted captaincy in rugby, I was a bit daunted because I thought it was all about these big heroic speeches and stuff like that, which I quickly realised it wasn't. That's yeah. it's way overrated, all that. Do you have a responsibility to do that? Like, I can't imagine you guys or the eight of you huddled up in a circle, you know, <laughs> the tapping your feet from yeah. one to ten before a race, yeah. like, like, you know, like the, the old school grassroots rugby. Is there anything off the sort of the race that you're responsible for? Or is it solely the tactical decisions during the race? Yeah, like you say, with a lot of sports like rugby, it's you got to go onto that field. I imagine I was never very good at rugby. I got battered. Did you play? Yeah. What yeah. position? I was terrible. You, what, what position? Yeah. I just chased the ball, mate. Just someone on the wing. I actually yeah. paid for a viner. <laughs> Did back you? In the day. Me the and my squirrel. brother. But oh. that was, we were young. Yeah. We were very young. Broke two fingers playing rugby. Grabbed onto a guy. <laughs> Is that why you chose he was running. <laughs> I said, no, it's not for me, this. But yeah, you don't go on to the, how you guys go onto the field and it's like, either tiger, I'm ready to kill someone. With cycling, it's more, you want to go out as calm as possible. You know, the calmer you go, the more energy you save. So like that pump up speech side of things isn't so relevant. Of course, there's times where it's like, come on, guys, we got to fucking yeah, go yeah. here. You know, like we've had a few bad days. Again. We're better yeah. than this. But kind of different angle from that. But you are some, you know, there's 30 guys in the team and, you know, seven or eight go to each individual race. And there is times where you kind of try and be the glue between people or, you know, if there's a, been a confrontation between two people, it's, you know, you should be there to kind of, right, guys, let's sort this out. And just, it's a bit of a tricky one, but say, say two guys have a ding dong. It's always better resolving that within the riders. It, and that's sort of something I've always tried to smooth things out. You know, if it goes to... The thing dong within your team. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's a high pressure environment. Yeah. So if there's, you know, ding dong within the team, then, you know, try and resolve that on the bus. And you're kind of in the middle of that just to oversee things. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a bit different, but there's, I guess there's a few similarities there. Do you like in cycling aspire to be a, like a road team captain? Or is it something that... You know, as you become more experienced, they said, "Oh, Luke, we'd like you to do this role." No, did it? Was it sort of thrown upon you, or was it something you were trying to work towards? No, I never made a conscious effort to go down that route. And I think, firstly, if you rewind to when I turned professional, two thousand and twelve, you envisaged yourself as a kid. What do you want to be? Yeah. I want to be the guy winning the Tour de France, winning this. Yeah. You, you envisaged yourself as um, the guy winning races. And then the first year, I gave it a crack. Second year, I gave it a crack. And it soon become apparent I was I was a decent professional, but I wasn't good enough to win races. So I kind of, at quite a young age, looked myself in the mirror and said, well, how am I going to do this for 12, 10, 15 years? How am I going to make a career out of this? And it was like, right, just got to be a domestique, which is, that's the phrase we use. And the simple translation to that, it's a French word, is helper. Hmm. So that's the kind of route I wanted to go down. But I said, right, if I'm going to be a domestique and not a leader, I want to try and be the best domestique in the world. And that's what that's what I really set my heart on. The best domestiques were also road captains. And I was lucky that two of the best 
in the whole sport at the time were actually within my team, Matthew Heyman and Bernie Eisel. But they, them guys, I owe a lot to. They and they, I don't know if they seen something in me or just thought we'll help the young kid out. But they, yeah, they set me up. They probably don't even realise, but um, they gave me a lot of time. Naturally, just found a place. How old were you when you were first given the captaincy? Not not just for the tour now, for whether it was at Worlds or anything like that. Probably. 23, 24. That, that sounds quite young. Is that quite that was, young? That was hard. Yeah. That was hard because, you know, you get a plan through uh, an email and the first time it came through, Luke Rowe, Rowe Captain, I thought... Oh, that's how you find out? Yeah. So it's not like a conversation, yeah. just sort of, uh, yeah. it's just, you're doing it, that's there you it. Are. Yeah. It's quite daunting because as a 23, 24 year old, there was guys within that squad, for example, who were 30, 32 and it was only three years ago I was looking up to them and thinking, yeah. you know, he's been pro for 10 years. So it's hard at first, definitely something... You're just taking your stride, don't you? Very similar to me. So I was young and there was guys like 10 years my senior. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if I had their full, not all of them. Some of them were great. Some of them I didn't know if I had their full buy-in. Did you get a sense of that or were they really supportive? Definitely had a sense of that. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say I'm the most vocal guy. I like to take the approach of when I talk, I want people to listen rather than being the loudest guy and stamping your foot down. You'll listen to me, you know? Yeah, I, big time. So I just thought, right, I'll just bide my time and kind of take the approach that over time if I keep doing a good job they'll back me so it was just um yeah that's the type of approach I took not to be stamp the iron fist and be loud just kind of at times let other people speak but when you do speak make sure you're saying something that's worth listening to it sounds spot on to me uh, the, the number one priority I always used to say as a captain was the performance side of it if you can do your role to the best of your ability you ultimately win over your your teammates respect by making sure you do that I always imagine the Tour de France is just this like phenomenal thing to be involved in where you just can't escape it. Is it like that as a captain and is it hard to escape from all that pressure? Yeah, everything's on another level and it's you're just in this pressure cooker. More people, more pressure, you know, more people viewing, higher risk, higher reward. Do you like that? I love it, yeah. yeah. I love it. It's where I make, I think, the best decisions. Yeah, I, quite, I thrive off the pressure. Is that what makes you, or one of the factors which makes you a good captain? Tough question. Um, the point I keep putting across is the calmer you are, the better you are. And I think yeah. any nervousness is is energy mm. and it's wasted energy. And that's just, it just adds up. Like we say, you start a race with a bag of sand and you start the race and you pop it with a pin and the sand starts dropping out. And every acceleration you do, every wasted nervous energy is just an extra pinprick. And if you stick enough pinpricks in there, all the sand's going to fall out and that's your energy. That bag yeah. of sand is your energy. Put as few pinpricks in there as possible and you'll have more sand left for the end of the race. So that's what, how you kind of talk about it in layman's terms and we still talk about it on the bus. Don't yeah, prick your bag, nice. bag of sand, boys. Yeah. Calmness is, is key. And also you've seen it all before. Nothing. There's not many things that surprise you or shock you or you make mistakes. I'd say that's the big one, actually, how you respond to a mistake. Because in any walk of life, any sport, you're going to make mistakes. But when it's easy to be cool, calm, collected when it's all going well and smooth, right? We're all in control. We're nailing this. You know, our leader's brilliant. All eight guys are on song. But how often does that really happen? So if someone crashes, you know, your leader's missed a split, your leader's underfueled, your bike's broken, all these things that are going wrong, I think that's where over the years you've seen it all before. Well, this happened last year, that happened three years ago, he's crashed before. That's where you can make the differences kind of calm under pressure. That comes with experience, I guess. If I said to you as a captain, is there anything that just comes to your mind that bugs you? Like a, maybe a decision you might have got wrong or a mistake, mistake yeah. you made. What, what comes to mind? If you say, right, one thing you regret, something that quite a lot of people know about and now further down the line, a lot of people joke about, 
and I even joke about it, but deep down, it's a decision I massively regret. And it was the 2019 Tour de France. I got disqualified from the Tour de France. I was going to ask you about this. We can go there now then. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was myself and another rider, Tony Martin. And it was, he was riding for Jumbo Visma. I was riding for, it was Ineos at the time, yeah. And we were like the two top teams in the race with the two top leaders. And he had the same role as me. So we were at loggerheads and this was, I actually got disqualified on the stage 18 of the 21. He was pissing me off. I was pissing him off. And as the days were going by, <laughs> we were just grinding on just each built other. up over the tour, yeah, not just well, like the day. And people see the one incident and go, well, they both just lost their heads. But it was, we were grinding on each other. And I had a lot of respect for him at the time. And I have a lot of respect for him now. You know, he's achieved tenfold what I have in my career. But we were just annoying each other. And he did something to me. I did something on the day where it happened. He chopped me up, I chopped him up, and then we turned the corner and we both just lost our heads and got kicked out of the Tour de France. And you know, a lot of people joke about it and laugh about it, but that lives with you forever. And that's a tick in the black box. You know, you don't want to be thrown out of the biggest sporting event in the world or one of the biggest sporting events in the world. And they went on to win that Tour de France with Egan Bernal. And they said, do you want to come? No, they called me, they said, Luke, we want you to come back to Paris for the party. And I was like, my head's in the shed. I, I'm embarrassed to come back. They said, no, 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 we want you to come. You're part of the team. You know, you did 18 stages. So I went back. That's something I always remember. I was in the in the crowd, in, in the stands, and just seeing the Tour de France come around the corner with Egan in yellow jersey and the remaining squad in the yellow jersey thinking, if I didn't do that three days ago, I'd have been there. It still bugs me, you know. I should have been there. That was a special moment. And it was um, a mistake that me and Tony made and it, you know, we paid for it. And I haven't said that. It might have been the first time I've said it publicly, but um, that bugs you and that annoys you. And you kind of, a few years later on, you look back and you've grown up a bit, you go, I'm just a plonker, you know, stupid. <laughs> but we live and learn, don't we? Uh, uh, the reason I asked that is, um, like I say, not to sort of dig you out, because I remember oh, I, I remember seeing, the, seeing it when it happened, which I thought, like, maybe there's some clips I didn't see, but from what I saw... It looked like he did go to take you right off the road. You yeah. know? And I remember thinking, flip, like, you know, your wheel, the front wheel was going sort of thing, you saved yourself. And I remember thinking, that's a bit, that's a bit dirty. Yeah. So I can completely understand your reaction. And the reason I, I picked up on it, I remember thinking, I think I know what Luke's going through because in 2011, I got sent off in the semi-final of the World Cup. Me getting sent off cost us that World Cup final. God knows what would have happened if we got there. But then I had this horrendous feeling of guilt. Was I not composed? And it's hard to escape that. And you yeah. worry, is that going to be what people, is that going to be the moment that defines my career? And you don't want it to be, you know? So I'd like to ask you, how did you get over that moment? I think, firstly, I'd say the difference there is, you said it cost you the game, which for us and for me, luckily they went on to win. If there had been one of them days in the next three days, because I actually watched it, the whole thing, sat in front of the sofa the next really? few days and I was... After the event, yeah, you sat back and watched once, it? once I come back to Cardiff and I got kicked out and I, I I couldn't get away from the TV and it was hard watching that but I was thinking, if there was a moment in them three days where something had happened, something had gone wrong, then that would have really hurt me. But luckily, there's such an experienced bunch that I wasn't that that missed. How I got over it, I mean, I'm over it now but it still bugs me. It just, it just annoys me a little bit, you know. It's such a a special thing to write, pull onto the Champs-Élysées and, you know, eight of you look left, look right, and it's, it's you eight. We all get like a signature, something yellow on you. It's special, you know, and um, I don't know if I'll do it again in my career. Maybe yes, maybe no, but that's something that, you know, I never took for granted. The hardest thing for me was just not not being there. But I would I would say 
it probably the first thing I did is something I wouldn't recommend is just go straight to the pub and <laughs> have eight, ten pints and drown your sorrows. That was pretty much the first thing I did. I yeah. went up the cottage and uh, had a few drinks, which what yeah, go to the bottle. I wouldn't that's not something I'd suggest. But um <laughs> So that was the first thing I did and then woke up the next morning and watched watched the bike race. But I'm glad I did go back to Paris. And the hardest thing was, you know, you're part of this circus on the road and you're going from place to place and you're in the bubble and you kind of forget like the scale of the event because you're just in the bubble you know I woke, woke up the next morning and they say right we're going to the start now and you're not so here's a taxi to the airport and wish you on your way and I said right now I'm going to say goodbye to the boys properly so I went on the kitchen truck I said oh, guys just want to say goodbye I'm, I'm sorry I haven't got much more to say I'm just sorry I, I broke down in tears and I I'm not a crier. Sometimes I should probably cry more. I've cried at my wedding, but cried at my child's birth, but I haven't cried for a long, long time. And I remember I was just on that kitchen truck and I was looking at each of the boys and I, I just felt, I didn't care about myself one bit. I was just like, I've let these guys down. We were not in the yellow jersey at the time, but it was a real dogfight. It could have gone three ways. So leaving them guys, what we'd been through, training camp, races prior, been through them 18 days, you go through so much with them guys and I just thought I just let them down and you just want to go home and lock the door and just just hide came back to Cardiff for a couple of days went back to Paris and definitely the right thing to go to Paris and they were all if if someone else makes a mistake you just mate don't worry we all make a mistake it's yeah. fine but when it's you it's harder to justify it to yourself isn't it and I remember G saying he was on race and um, he came to my room and he was like mate the thing is the only reason you got so pissed off and it escalated that much is because you care and because you wanted to do the best for the team and yeah I do wear my heart on my sleeve and it was a massive mistake but you know little things like that when a mate comes to your room who you've known for 20 years yeah that made it a little bit easier as well and um but he's right yeah if if, if someone doesn't care at all then they're probably not going to go that extra little bit and I was yeah all in for the boys but uh yeah still something I regret massively are you that honest with each other as well when you're riding and you're traveling? Because I guess you need to have that level of honesty and not honestly call each other out, not to be negative, but as a team, you, you have to have some of those hard conversations. Do you find that quite a difficult thing to do when you're with friends, having those honest conversations and making decisions on the go on the road? I think it's definitely easier to call someone out or have an honest conversation if they're not one of your good mates. Yeah, big time. But, you know, me and G have had by no means arguments, but you know, he thinks that's right and I think something else is right. And you go, well, let's have an honest conversation and talk it out. It's a lot easier to do with someone who you haven't known for 20 years because it's a friendship. So definitely find it easier with people I don't know as well. But I think, yeah, our team is is like this kind of no gossip policy. If there's a problem, then we sort it out and, and it's amongst riders. There's no need to go get someone in trouble and go to the higher powers in the team. It's old school, sit down, we'll deal with it. We'll iron it out. We'll shake hands and we'll get on with it. And that's that makes it sound like there's a lot of arguments. There's really not. But if there is anything, any niggles, just iron it out. This isn't just me. There's a there's a lot of senior guys who kind of all chip in and make sure everything's above board. And I think that's um that's one of the reasons the team's been successful as it is over the past ten years. And we've always said if you're happy off the bike, you'll be successful on the bike. What would be an example of maybe, or is there an example of a disagreement that comes to mind, which might have got heated on the road that you had to deal with? Oh, there's many. There's many. Um, <laughs> we probably went G won the tour. You know, Froomey was, prior to that, he'd won the tour four times. So he's going in as top dog. It's all for Froomey. 
this never escalated to an argument, partly because G is the most chilled out man. If he was any more laid back, he'd fall over. But, um, <laughs> you know, Froomey's going into the Tour de France. He's four-time champion. He's on the big salary. He's the superstar. He's the current top dog in the sport. And then two weeks before, G wins the pre-Tour de France build-up race. He wins the Criterion de Dauphiné. And suddenly it's like, oh, hang on. Was that unexpected as well? Unexpected, so yeah. yeah. You know, it's like whoever wins that race often goes into the tour as a big leader. So we get to the start line and we've got G and Froomey. It's like, right, well, it's it's all for Froomey. It's all for Froomey still. And we actually did, um, I think it was stage two or three, maybe, a team time trial. So that's where eight of you, it's a shorter stage, it's 20 to 30K. You get from A to B as fast as you can. Now, if one of the leaders has a problem, has a puncture, has a mechanical, you've got two options. You either wait for them, so the whole team stops, waits and goes again, or if you leave them, they're going to lose so much time because they're on their own. The team said, uh, the protocol is, if Froomey has a puncture or mechanical, we're waiting. If G has any issues, um, we're leaving him, we're going. And I, and I said, well, this, this is coming from the senior management and DSs. So is that to make sure one of them gets across the line quick? Yeah. yeah. But my opinion was you've got two guys who both have a chance so this is stage three of the Tour de France, it's 21 days. We should keep two guys in the game. And G's looking at me like winking, going, yeah, 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 keep <laughs> me in the game. I said, well, yeah, I think we should wait for G. And then there's a big arm and arm. Froomey's, you know, Froomey was like, well, no, I don't think we should wait for G because then Froomey is essentially waiting yeah, for G. That. So that was like already on day three. Anyway, the final call was, we're not waiting for G, we're only waiting for Froomey. And that's what we did. Neither had mechanicals. But G just got on with that being pretty chilled. G just got on with yeah. it. He kind of let it go over his head. I tried to say we should have waited for him. Not because he was a mate. If he was German, Ecuadorian, Spanish, yeah. doesn't matter. I, as a rider, for his attributes and what he'd just done, I thought it was the right move to make. But then as the race went on, it became apparent that G was the strongest guy in the tour. The year he won, he was the strongest guy. How many days in did you start thinking we're going to have to have this awkward conversation where G starts leading then? Luckily, it just happened naturally the legs kind of took over. So there, was, there wasn't too many words didn't have to be said because it was just apparent that he was the yeah. stronger man. But there was days where, you know, G took the yellow jersey quite early on that year. They'd be in the meeting and Froome is saying, well, I want to attack. I think the way I'm going to win this Tour de France is I'm going to attack. And we're going, but we've actually got the yellow jersey already. So if you're attacking, you're fundamentally attacking your teammate. And again, there was, there was never an argument. You know, Froome is a great bloke and... Like I said, how chilled out she is. But this was one Tour de France that was had to be really carefully managed. And that was probably a Tour de France where there was a lot of discussions between myself and G, myself and Froomey, myself and the DSs. And it was the, a lot of conversations going on just to keep everyone on board. Because all it would have taken is a small spark for that. It was on the edge, you know. But luckily Froomey is such a, uh, you know, he'd won it a few times and G... You know, he's the most relaxed guy and you won't get a more... Even to the point where if Froomey had attacked, G would have probably accepted it because the champion he is, you know. So uh, that was one Tour de France that could have easily exploded but didn't. But there's often confrontations and I think it's natural. There's, it's more with the young guys. They pop up on the scene and they go, I want to be the best. I want the opportunity. I want uh, the team to work for me. The older guys have kind of been there, seen it, done it, you know how it works, kind of earn your stripes, but more with the younger guys, it's a bit more, a bit more of a dogfight. Fascinating insight, I love that.
You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, Luke Rowe. This isn't like an intelligent question, but what what are you thinking, right? Because if I'm on the wing and there's a, a 20 stone bloke just pelting towards me, are you ever thinking like, nah, how am I going to yeah, get out of look, this? I'm glad you asked that, actually, because it, it reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you. That doesn't bother me at all. I love that because I was doing a charity ride the other Must day. Must hurt so much. I was, I was thinking of you boys. I was doing a charity ride and um, we went at the Sacalabra in uh, Mallorca. Really? I actually loved it. I, I don't know, it would take me like three times as long as you, you do it. Sorry, do you, do you ride a bike or is this just like a one-off? Well, it, was, um, it was a charity ride. I'd never ridden a bike before. But I did, I had like a turbo trainer indoor thing for the house. My, my mistake was I didn't go out on the road. So my feel was terrible. I, yeah. I was turning like a boat and didn't like going downhill. But... But I actually found the climbing the easiest bit. I wasn't quick, but I found it the easiest bit because I can just get in that mindset and just go. Do you know what I mean? And I wasn't going quick, so I felt safe and stuff. I was chatting to one of the guys, uh, one of the sort of team, the tour leaders, who's obviously like an experienced cyclist when you go out on these things. We had to come back down, obviously. So what goes up must come down. So it took like about an hour and a half to get home, just going down. It's like quite steep gradients. And I was the last one in the whole group to get home by like half an hour. Everyone's looking at their Stravas, they're doing like 40, 50 mile an hour. What would you do going downhill fastest? Fastest I've ever been in my life was about 120k an hour. Fucking crazy. Because yeah. I was like, right, they got my Strava out, 25 mile an hour. <laughs> <laughs> The whole day, right? I was on the oh. I was on the brakes, flat out. There was all these Europeans flying past me. I think my road etiquette was terrible because you got like a lot of ditches there, haven't you, on the side of the road? Yeah, yeah. So like, I'm not. I don't feel safe going down. So I'm like in the middle of the road, shitting myself. Brakes on all the time. These Europeans are flying past me, shouting at me. I can't understand them. Probably my road etiquette is terrible. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, I was I was terrified going down. I was chatting to guys. I said, you know, I was like, you cyclists are mad. I was thinking of you boys, and you got like cobbles and all that, and. I said, you, you're mad. I said, I don't know how you go downhill more than 20, 30, 40 mile an hour. I said, if you come off, you're gone, Mike. And yeah, he went, yeah. well, how many operations have you had playing rugby? I said, seven. He went, well, there you are. I would never play rugby. And I was like, it's just perspective. I would much rather run into 18 stone men for two hours than cycle down a hill at 40, 50 mile an hour. So I think you guys are bonkers. So it's all, I guess it's yeah. perspective, isn't it, you know? But yeah, I, I find that easy. The thought of someone, I'll be walking the dog. And if a big dude's coming towards me, I haven't played now for a few years, quite a few years, four or five years. When there's a big guy coming towards me, I'm thinking, boy, I'd love it if he turned on me now. I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to stick the shoulder on him and just show him like, you know, there's guys who size me up in dinners and stuff now. They go, oh, you're not as big in real life as I thought. And I go, run just a bit of banter. Then, I go, well, run at me and see what happens then. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, I yeah. love that. So that's kind of like, but that's just my comfort zone. That's just where I'm comfortable. So I guess you asked that question about point being is, I guess it's perspective because I look at what you're doing. I'm like, mate, you're crazy. Do you not feel any sense of danger when you're doing that? Well, that's, you've flipped that on his head very well. I never used to as a kid, or even when I first turned pro, I never, ever thought about crashing. Consequences in a race, all guns blazing. If I go down, I go down. I'll get back up, or if not, I'll break something or whatever. But now, it is there a little bit in the back of your mind, but only before the race. When I'm in the race, when numbers on my back, it's like, what happens, happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's mainly through just seeing crashes and yeah. seeing... It's been older being just in a few more aware. Yeah. yeah. Do I want to come home in a wheelchair? Not really. Yeah. But as soon as you get in the race, yeah, it's just whatever happens. I heard a psychologist talk about this and he said the difference between not you, because you're obviously conditioned to go quick and stuff, but like a, the difference between someone like myself who picks up, this was a skiing analogy, but similar with a bike. He's like, if you have a kid who's just picked up the skis for the first time, they're like, where's the snow? And then, but you see an adult and they're like, where's the trees? Do you know what I mean? Like, where's the hazards, yeah, you know? Yeah. So y- your mindset changes when you get older. And that's what I was like on the bike. We went out early this one day, went through some silt and some guy just took his back wheel from away from oh, him yeah. and he had a horrific graze up his leg. 
I was like, oh, I don't fancy that. And that yeah. spooked me for the, like, the next three days. I was just like going really, I was like, I go with the back guys, you know? So it's what you're conditioned to. I what? guess, yeah, maybe it's just that. Like if a guy runs towards me, he hits me, I'm instantly breaking bones. I, I, <laughs> he just snapped me, you know? <laughs> but then if I get on a bike and I go downhill at 100k an hour, I'm like, look at that lunatic. I know I've, I know I've got yeah. the ability or the skill to deal with that. So I've, I've questioned um, a few of the guests this one. When I was young, I had a, a skills coach or a mental skills coach, sports psychologist, whatever you call it. I was a young, quite naive captain, but he said to me, right, we're going to come up with a leadership compass for you. So you've got to pick four attributes and four traits. And I live by this, so I had it like on my phone, on my iPad, had it written down. I thought, if I demonstrate these four qualities, I think I'll be a good captain. If I was asking you now, you had to come up with a leadership compass and you've got to fill it with four attributes, what would be your four attributes to fill that leadership compass? I'd, I'd definitely say loyalty mm. I think you want when I go back to I want to be the best domestique in the world that's what I set myself out on yeah I love that so essentially what you want off the other leaders if they're asked right who do you want to support you in the Tour de France or the Giro you want them to write your name down first yeah. I want him mm. and you want the leaders saying saying that so the biggest thing is you got to build up that loyalty so that's got to be one loyalty commitment just if they know typical dressing room mentality you look left you look right and you're like well, these guys are going to ride into a brick wall for me. Just knowing that they're going to ring it out, all they got each and every day. So definitely commitment. I think what I learned at the start is, so this this would maybe go like, kind of cover all four bases a little bit, is I kind of didn't really understand a bit of what a rogue captain or general captain's job was. But I think over the years I've realized all you're trying to do is make yourself better you instantly think, well, I've got to start to think of others. I've got to help others. I've got to watch out for others, try and guide the young guys. But essentially, I've learned all you've got to do is look after yourself and make yourself better and others will hopefully follow. I've said this before and I'm going to jump in on that because I completely agree. Um, some people ask me, what's the key trait? And I say, it sounds the wrong thing to say in a team sport, but you actually still have to be selfish in yourself yeah. because if you can't do your role, then you're going to be gone. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, the first thing you kind of think of is, right, I've got to start giving time to other people. Mm. But that time is taken away from your time. Yeah. And the, the best way you can invest your time is in yourself. You've got to be the best you can be. That's what, and it took me a little while to realize that. Yeah. Like, oh, I've got to make time for others. No, you make time for yourself and put yourself number one. Nothing mm. changes and then hopefully others will follow. Yeah, love that. Well, I mean, we've got there's some good ones there. I think that's fab. I didn't quite cover the north, south, east, west. But you don't have got, to come up with You can have a fourth if you want. Those three yeah. are good anyway. But yeah, yeah, like I say, they cover a few bases. They're good, though. They, we'll I like those. Yeah, loyalty, commitment, and still remaining selfish in your own performance is great. When things aren't they're going against the grain a bit, who do you like go to? Who do you speak to? Because there are times when, you know, it's hard to do on your own, elite sport or whatever field of work you're in. When you're at the very top, it gets, it's hard, you know. So who do you turn to in time just to speak to when, when things are getting a bit rough? That's probably a bit of a weakness of mine. Like we got two psychiatrists who work for the team and um, I spoke to one once in my life and the other never. Maybe that's a bit of an egotistical, manly thing, but I've never really gone down that route. Most of the guys in the team do, I don't. So it'd either be, you know, if I've had something's going wrong or I need to voice my opinion, it'd either be my coach who, he's more than a coach. He's, I can speak to him about anything. If something's going wrong with a family, so perhaps maybe he's a psychiatrist, he's, he's got that in his locker. So maybe I 
without realizing how treat him like of, that role yeah, yeah putting him in that that role so definitely speak to him he's a great guy He's about your size, actually, but a bit more plump. He's an Aussie. I'll take that as a compliment, yeah. No, no, we call it, his, his nickname's The Rock. He's, he's, oh, a, he's a bit that. of a weapon, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you wouldn't want to fight him. That'd be a good fight, actually, you against him. Me and him? Yeah. Oh, I'm not a fighter. <laughs> just I give, it, I, give it, I just tackle him instead. Yeah, just yeah. tackle him, yeah, you wouldn't get up from that. But I'm going to get some brownie points for this answer, and that's probably my wife. Um, nice, yeah. We've been that's together same. forever and a day, you know, before I even considered cycling as a professional sport. I was... We were in school together. Yeah, we're yeah, both yeah. Lanishin, yeah. We're both Lanishin, yeah. So, uh, I'm the child. same high school sweetheart at 16 yeah, as well. That was yeah, it. yeah. So, you know, before cycling was a job, it was just uh, That's nice. a bit of a passion. We've been together forever. So, she's, you know, been through thick and thin together, haven't we? So, um, Amazing. you know, you talk to her about anything. How'd you get away from cycling? I've seen you're a ice hockey fan. You know, do you do things which, because I think it's important to get away from the sport you're in as well. You can't live it all day, every day. And, especially when you're in leadership roles and you know, you're a high-profile athlete like yourself. How did you get away from cycling? What do you do to sort of disconnect and switch off? I think hockey's definitely a massive one. You know, follow the NHL and follow the, the British Ice Hockey League, so the, the Cardiff yeah. Devils, obviously. When I'm back in Cardiff, which isn't that often, I get down to as many games as I can, and that's a... I love it down there. And I go yeah. with guys a lot of the time who aren't cyclists, so the conversation isn't, oh, how was your train today? How was the bike? Yeah. What power are you doing? All that crap it was just um <laughs> just completely different bunch of mates and a completely different sport quite enjoy that obviously now family yeah. and my wife she won't mind me saying she doesn't really have a clue about cycling and i love that yeah that's great i absolutely love it with kath my missus she's she ain't got a scooby-doo and i love it you know she, i'll go in coming off the bike i'll get them from a race how's the race yeah all good done how's the boys nice. talk about the boys for now yeah yeah it's quite nice that she hasn't got a clue and, she, and she, she'll admit it herself. She hasn't got a clue. She's not. She supports me amazingly, but she's not that into cycling. When I, when I first said I uh, essentially going to sign this contract for a professional sports team, and she was just baffled by it. Professional cycling. So what? <laughs> what will you do for a job? And I was like, well, that's it. That is yeah. my job. <laughs> what? You'll ride a bike for a job? <laughs> I thought it was just someone, something someone used to get to the shops. So no, it's, it's actually going to be a job. Can you believe it? <laughs> Someone's going to pay me to dress up in Lycra, but... Um... <laughs> well, so you mentioned ice hockey. Was there... Well, I, I grew up and I'd see remember, like Tiger Woods, like that mentality I used to love in those athletes. Were there athletes when you were growing up which sort of inspired you that you wanted to emulate or do you, have you sort of found out and discovered that yourself? No, actually, actually not. There was no one... Um, actually, no, no, there is. I've got one of his jerseys in, uh, oh, in nice. the other room and it's uh, Zadino Chara. You won't have heard of him, probably not. But he was captain of the Boston Bruins. Legend. Most games played by a D-man in the whole of the NHL. Six foot nine, Slovakian. Wow. He's a badass. Oh, so he went all the way across to play there. Yeah, yeah, yeah and he played uh, played over there for 100. Oh, so you're a big ice hockey fan then. Yeah, I didn't realize how much 650 games in the NHL. Oh, jeez, that's crazy. Ranging from 21 years old to 42, he retired. I looked up to him. Probably only in the last six, eight years, so not when I was I was younger, but I certainly watched him and anyone who spoke about him, so if his teammates spoke about him, they would say he wasn't the loudest, but he just led by example. Like he worked the hardest, which I'm not saying I do. There's actually guys who work harder than me in, within the team. I would definitely say Zidino Chara. I spoke to him on mine and Garrett's podcast, so I've got to speak to him. Did you, did you try and find him because you liked him that much? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he obviously obliged and jumped Well, on. it turned out he was a massive cycling fan. It's oh, quite really? weird. Small world, isn't it? It's, it's quite mad. weird. Yeah. So I went to a New York Rangers Boston Bruins game. My agent, as a birthday present, said, spoke to the team and said, would it be possible 
for Luke to meet Sedino after the game. And he was, oh, it sounds like I'm being big-headed here, but he was quite excited. Yeah. And I was thinking, what the hell? This is like, <laughs> this is my hero. So you've met him face to face? Yeah, then? yeah. What were you like when you met him? I was gobsmacked, yeah. yeah. I, I, there's not many people I'd be um, like gobsmacked by. I'd probably try and stay relatively cool, but I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like kid in a candy shop. I was with Carl, like, <laughs> the he's same, there, yeah. he's there, he's yeah, there. Yeah, that's class. It, yeah, it was amazing. And I think, uh, yeah, just he was just a warrior. So I always looked up to him. Love that. I think you've emulated that. How has captaincy changed you, not just in cycling, or has it changed you, you know, outside, just as a person? Has it helped you gain perspective, deal with situations outside of cycling? has been given that role and responsibility to help you or will help you for, for life after cycling as well. Yeah, another tough one. I'd, I'd like to think that what happens on the bike and the racing, but mainly training situations, I can just be myself and the guy who I've always been off the bike. As soon as I, f I finish that, I come home, I'm just Luke, who's up for a crack, good dad, family man. I like to think I'll always be that, but certainly there's a lot of things... I think I'll, I've learned and can take into normal life. Or if, if I retired and got a normal job, there's so much that the sport and, and being in this bubble, can, I can take across. You know, you even speak to mates about stuff in work and you just think of outside the bubble, well, why didn't you do that? Why didn't yeah. you deal with that? that? Yeah. You know, if there's any confrontations, it's like, you know, one of your mates is whinging. Well, go and deal with it. You've had an argument with your missus. Well, speak to him. Why are you with me? Yeah. <laughs> deal with it. Or, oh, my boss is a knob well he's not just go and talk <laughs> so i think in day-to-day -day life there's you learn so much from from, from sport and i think it'll definitely hopefully put me in good stead for the future if you saw an 18 year old lucro young aspiring cyclist down mainly and they asked you advice on how to be a good road captain what advice would you give him or her leave tony martin alone <laughs> <laughs> uh, just uh just suck it up um <laughs> No, I would say just just be yourself. And actually what I would say is just get the basics right. You know, you see, I see a lot of 17-year-olds and they're just trying to put the cherry on top of the cake before they do the basic things right, you know? They're not training properly. They're not putting the hard work in. But they've got a coach. They've got the best bikes. They've got all the fancy glitz and glamour. Mate, get back to basics. You're not training enough. And then as you get older, as your career progresses, let all this glitzy glam and all the tech and all that come to you. But make sure it's that way around. I love loads of what you're saying. There's so many parallels. I was in a change room with Cardiff once and I had a young academy player go, um, oh, Sam, how'd you get an Addy boot deal? How'd you get a boot deal? <laughs> and I went, play for Wales, mate, and do it well. Yeah. Like, what do you think about that for? Like, And one of the best bits of advice that I had uh, when I was coming through, and it was from a coach, he just went, you look after the rugby and you play the best that you possibly can, everything else will fall into place. All you've got to worry about is that. Don't worry about all that other stuff. So I, I you know, resonate with that really good advice. And then finally, if, say, guys you've cycled with, you know, you mentioned some of the, the high-profile lads, Froome, you know, G and that, if they sat and describe what you're like as a captain, how do you think they'd describe you? <sighs> yeah, great question. Something, something you don't really think about what others, what others think of you. How good do people think I am? Yeah. <laughs> He's a good-looking boy, isn't he? <laughs> um, I, I hope the one word, I, I would really push that loyalty. And yeah. I think they know if I say something or if I believe in something or if I say I'll do something, I'll do that to the best of my ability. So just, um, and I always said, like, 
the phrase like you ride into a wall for someone. If if and I will, but if I have a leader and I'm there to support him, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, on any given race, I I will give that leader everything I have. On some days, it's not as much, or some days more or less, but that's not through the want to try, and that's because you have good days or bad days, dips in form. But I'll give a hundred percent of what I have on that given day. So I I hope that would mean they would say loyalty. Other than that, I hope they say I'm a nice guy who can have fun along the way. You'll have to ask them what they do say. It'd be quite interesting. Probably nothing that nice, but <laughs> we can always dream. No, man, honestly, I've genuinely loved this, actually. Mate, it's been fascinating, genuinely fascinating. And for me, it's painfully obvious to see why you were named as a road captain. You're extremely down-to-earth, but hard-working, professional, diligent, all those things. But more importantly, you would make a, a phenomenal leader. So been a privilege to watch you over the last 10 years as a fellow Cardiff much. man, Welshman, you've flown the flag for us and you know, Great Britain amazingly. So I want to say thank you so much. Congrats on a great career and uh, being a top leader. Cheers, Luke. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thanks again to Luke for his time and for inviting us into his home. Plenty of great takeaways from that chat. I love his bag of sand analogy. If you stick enough pinpricks in your bag of sand, you will not last a distance. And that's definitely something that can be applied when starting out on any type of project, no matter what the circumstance. He spoke about loyalty a few times. That is absolutely vital to building strong connections. And hearing him talk so openly about being disqualified at the Tour de France was really fascinating. And as he said, how you bounce back from disappointment is the real test. Having good friends and a strong support network is key. Don't forget, make sure you're across the GTCC feed to get those episodes of What's Occurring too. Also, if you want bonus episodes of Captains, you can. Subscribe to Crowd Sports Plus on Apple and you'll get an episode of The Huddle every Thursday, as well as getting these episodes ad-free. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. It's great getting your messages and please keep them coming, either via captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag CaptainsPod on social media. Any suggestions for future guests or any captaincy questions you want to ask me, just drop me a line. And do follow us on LinkedIn for extra content and leadership tips. Just search for Captains with Sam Warburton. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.